I want to talk this morning about thirst, and, and this, is a, this falls into the category when you think of, of Aubrey's sermons. There are strictly textual sermons, you know, plowing deeply into one text, and then there are other sermons that do kind of biblical theology treatment of, of important themes and topics, uh, and this is a, a little bit of a blend of both. Uh, my primary text we've just heard, uh, it's a portion of Ephesians 5. Uh, specifically verses 18 through 21, and and we'll come to those verses directly, but um, we need to build to that point by talking about this theme that is sounded really in every one of the scripture verses, uh, passages today, and and the psalm as well, this theme of thirst. In 1997, Nancy and I went to uh, Phoenix, Arizona uh, for a sabbatical. we were there, I was there for a, a couple of months, and it was the summer. Um, that wasn't the best time to be in Phoenix. And um, I discovered the first week that um, I felt faint all the time. I would get out of the car and almost keel over. Um, I would be walking around and uh, feel lightheaded, and I was concerned. I didn't know what was going on. And uh, so I went to uh, a doc in the box, and I said, can you run some tests? And they ran a whole bunch of tests. And and they finally, after all these tests were inconclusive, they said, "Uh, are you drinking lots of water? And I said, "Uh, yeah, no more than usual, which is not a whole lot. And they said, there's your problem. Um, I was dehydrated. And all these other things were a result of that. I was thirsty, and I needed to be filled. This week, if you uh, listen to uh, NPR regularly, you may have caught the news story. I think it was on Wednesday or Thursday, in which we heard reported that most American children and teenagers aren't drinking enough fluids, and that's leaving them mildly dehydrated according to a study. In fact, one quarter of a broad cross-section of children ages 6 to 19 apparently don't drink any water as part of their fluid intake. They're thirsty, and it's costing them. Now, in another, in another vein, uh, you may well have heard of the recent Pew study of American religious uh, behavior and affiliation, and uh, probably the thing that stands out most and, and has been uh, commented on most widely is the rapid growth over the last several years of the category defined as the nuns, those who have no reported religious affiliation. And it's caused a great deal of alarm uh, among American denominations. Uh, it's, it's caused a, a huge amount of, of uh, prideful posturing and uh, rationalization and spin among those denominational leaders who are all eager to distance themselves from the results or explain them in some way that is self-serving. But the results are the same. Um, people are leaving churches by the droves leaving religious affiliation of all kinds in great numbers, and there's no sign that that trend will slow down. And not only can you uh, see figures that talk about the nuns, but uh, increasingly we're hearing a little squibby reports about another category of people called the duns, uh, people who feel they've been abused by churches um, or um, have you know, are just running away from toxic religious experiences. I'd like to interpret all those results broadly by saying there is, by any estimation, widespread spiritual thirst. 
And that's not contradicted by the disappearance from sanctuaries. A long time ago, 40-odd years ago, the great American novelist John Updike said this, reflecting on his own experience of being done with the church. He'd grown up a Lutheran. He said, the churches bore for me the same relation to God that billboards did to Coca-Cola. They promoted thirst without quenching it. There are a lot of thirsty people around us. Have you come thirsty today? In the Bible, there is a clear recognition of the problem, but also a reminder of God's promised provision. Psalm 42, as a deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O my God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. Isaiah 44, I will pour water on the thirsty land, God promises, and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your descendants. And Isaiah 55, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. I'll ask again, did you come thirsty this morning? That is the invitation of our Lord. Come thirsty. Whatever that thirst is, come thirsty. Some people are thirsty because their hearts are empty and they know it. Like St. Augustine in his confessions who said, you made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. He was thirsty. He was tapped out, empty. And like Augustine, before he became a God-satisfied, God-quenched man, some of us are in a mad scramble to fill the void in our hearts with other things, even good things like family and work, even religious things. But you can't satisfy the thirst of our souls by pouring on new relationships and experiences and achievements and careers. Only God can quench our thirst. And while empty people can never get enough of their false pursuits, they're easily satisfied with the merest sips of God. Do you have any idea how good God is? Other people are thirsty because their hearts are dry. When the Bible speaks of the river of God's delight, they understand. But it's been so long since they've drunk from that river, their hearts are dry, and they even make other people dry around them. For them, Christianity has become moralistic rules and religious duty, and they're doing their best to grind it out. Do you need to be refreshed and to become refreshing again? Still other people are thirsty because they are enjoying God. They're not perfect. They have problems, but they're tasting the goodness of the Lord. The satisfied heart finds God so delightful it craves for more. If that's you, you only need to indulge your holy appetites. Which kind of thirst did you bring to God today? Are you empty or dry or full? Whoever you are, Jesus says to you, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Come to me and drink. 
But why is it then that in spite of God's promise and provision of living water, so many are still so thirsty? The prophet Jeremiah had an answer because he, he lived among a devastatingly thirsty people. He says, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they've dug out cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that can hold no water. Uh, Jeremiah's painting a picture of an artesian well, which spouts a continuous flow of water. It's contrasted with a broken cistern, which is incapable of holding precious rainwater that falls into it. Is it conceivable? I mean, is it really conceivable that anyone would abandon the flowing fountain for the cracked and leaky cistern? Well, apparently so. These people, Jeremiah says, have forsaken the living God. Martin Luther, echoing Jeremiah, called God in his commentary on the Lord's Prayer, the inexhaustible fountain. When you've got an inexhaustible fountain before you, why keep going to a leaky, cracked cistern? No water there. We know, don't we, where to find living water. Because as Paul reminds us, we were all baptized into one, in one spirit, into one body, and we were all given, how does he say it? The one spirit to drink. And that brings us to Ephesians 5. Paul says, don't get drunk with wine. It's not against wine. He's just against the depressing and depressant effects of inebriation. He says, don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. But be filled with the Holy Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Be filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? I mean, I've heard that phrase just about my whole Christian life, and I've heard a hundred different takes on what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Have you ever stopped and just thought about it and tracked it through? First, that phrase, be filled with the Spirit, isn't, is not commanding empty Christians to acquire something they don't already have. We don't pray, fill us, Lord, with your Spirit, as though we didn't already possess the Spirit. We've been given in one, the one Spirit living water to drink. Paul reminded the Romans, who must have been doubting, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Jesus. And if Christ is in you, though the body's dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness, you who are believers have the Spirit dwelling in you. And nonetheless, we pray, fill us, Lord. We're commanded, indeed, be filled with the Spirit. So that's the first misunderstanding. It's not about acquiring something we don't already have. Secondly, Paul's phrase is not equating fullness of the Spirit with baptism with the Spirit. Holy Spirit baptism is not an extra experience you need to seek. It's something you have from the moment you're saved. 
It's a theological reality, an act by which Jesus Christ, through the agency of the Spirit, places you in the body of Christ. Read 1 Corinthians 12. Or just go back and read John 7's gospel this morning. So let's look just for a minute at this word, be filled. It's one word in Greek. Quite clearly reveals the correct meaning of Paul's command. A a literal translation of the verb would read something like, by being, be, this is awkward, be being kept filled. That's literally what Paul's grammar says. Be being kept filled. Now, you'd never say that. The idea is keeping yourself constantly filled as you yield moment by moment to the leading of the Spirit. It fits perfectly with the the process of walking by the Spirit, which is another one of Paul's mandates. I'm just going to do a a teeny tiny little grammatical excursus here. It, It helps just a little bit to get the thrust of what Paul's really saying here. First of all, it's plural. He's talking to a whole congregation of people, not just isolated individuals. It's addressed to the whole Christian community. Secondly, it's present tense, which for Paul means in Greek, it's an ongoing reality, not not a once-off event. Be filled with the Spirit is repeated, ongoing, continual. It's imperative, meaning it's a command we're to obey, not an option to consider. And finally, it's in the passive voice. We don't fill ourselves. Rather, we receive the Spirit's fullness. We are filled with him. We are commanded, keep on being filled with the Spirit. And as I've said, this is not a one-time experience, and certainly not a one-time emotional experience that you initiate constantly, instantly, Some people think they're placed into some inner circle of spiritual maturity. That's how they interpret being filled with the Spirit. Be filled, as I said, is actually in the passive voice. Indicates you receive the action. The Holy Spirit is continuously filling you. It's simply another facet of the Spirit's indwelling ministry, which allows you to have daily, moment-by-moment effectiveness and fulfillment in your Christian life. When we use the word fill in English, we normally think of something being placed into a container, such as milk being poured to the brim of a glass, water being run into a bathtub, or gas being pumped into a car, gas tank. But none of those examples uh, really conveys the meaning of to fill or be filled as Paul's talking about it here. So there are three shades of meaning. The first carries the idea of pressure. It's used in this sense to describe the wind billowing the sails on a ship or sailboat, providing the impetus to to move the vessel across the water. In the spiritual realm, this concept depicts the Holy Spirit providing the thrust to move the believer down the pathway of obedience. A spirit-filled Christian isn't motivated by her own desires or will to progress. Instead, she allows the Holy Spirit to carry her in the proper direction. Another helpful example of this is is a small stick floating in a stream. Most of us have have tossed a, a stick into a creek and then run downstream to see the twig come floating by, propelled only by the force of the water. To be filled with the Spirit means to be carried along by the gracious power, pressure of the Holy Spirit. But the word can also convey the sense of of permeation. It's like with Alka-Seltzer. 
you, you drop one or two tabs into a glass of water, and they instantly begin to fizzle. If you don't know what Alka-Seltzer is, ask me later. Soon the tablets are, are transformed into, into clear bubbles throughout the glass, and the water is permeated with the distinct flavor, the wretched flavor of Alka-Seltzer. <laughs> In a similar sense, God wants the Holy Spirit to permeate and flavor our lives so when we're around others, they'll know for certain we, per- we possess the pervasive savor of the Spirit. But there's a third meaning. It's actually the primary one in the New Testament, I think, which conveys the sense of domination or total control. It's used by the gospel writers to indicate that people were dominated by a certain emotion. For instance, in Luke, Jesus uh, rebuked the Pharisees and healed the paralytic. The people were astonished, and it says they were filled with fear. And then the next chapter, Jesus restores a man's hand on the Sabbath. The scribes and Pharisees were filled with rage. And in John's gospel, Jesus told the disciples that he was going to soon be leaving them. He told about their reaction. Sorrow has filled your heart. Each of those uses reveals an emotion so overwhelming within the people that it dominated their thoughts and excluded every other emotion. Now, most people are able to balance their emotions from day to day. But there are these times when emotion is is tipped to one extreme or another. Uh, The wedding of my daughter was impossibly emotional for me, but I had to keep it together because I was presiding. (laughs) Or the death of a close family member. Or an extreme emergency or trial. When someone is totally dominated by a particular emotional reaction in those contexts, it can be foolish, sinful, a waste of time, or even frightening and physically harmful. But in our spiritual lives, we're commanded to yield to the total control of the Holy Spirit so that every emotion, thought, and act of the will is under the Spirit's direction. That kind of complete spiritual control is for our benefit, and it's totally in line with God's will. Maybe the best way to to get our minds and and hearts around this, though, is, is to look at the parallel passage where Paul talks about the same dynamic and the same results. It's in Colossians. And if you've ever studied Colossians and Ephesians side by side, you know how how closely they track each other. But there are these moments where they seem to be saying almost the same thing, but in a decidedly different way. Well, in Colossians 3, 16, Paul says, let the word of Christ Richly dwell within you. Colossians and Ephesians were written at the same time. Carried around by the same person to congregations. And but there's this little difference. In Ephesians, Paul talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And in Colossians, he talks about letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. There are obviously two ways to look at the same thing. One can be filled with the Spirit only when controlled by the Word. It's knowing truth and obeying it. So if being filled with the Spirit means being pressured, permeated, and dominated by the Spirit and God's Word, what can you expect to happen in your life as a direct result? And here Paul quickly ticks off four things. Fellowship. 
He calls it addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Have you ever thought about that? It's not always the case, but often when we sing, we're singing our praises primarily to God, but we're also addressing one another, encouraging one another. This is, this is maybe in Anglican tradition most visibly brought to expression at, at the, uh, the liturgy of morning prayer when we're, we sing, uh, often uh, sing or, or speak joyfully a psalm at the beginning, Psalm 95. Uh, often we sing it antiphonally, sort of echoing across from one group to the other. We, we sing to each other, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. We're not saying that to God, we're saying it to each other. It's saying, get on board, get with it, lift your voices, get the praise going, sing. It's like a rallying cry. It's almost an invariable call to worship for Anglicans. That fellowship in public worship is what Paul's talking about here. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I think even the great hymns of the faith filled with rich gospel content fit into this category. Because when we sing those words, it's as though we're saying to each other, this is what we believe. There's fellowship, there's worship. Singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart or in your heart. Singing and making melody. Is that vocal? Is that instrumental? Is it both? With all your heart. With sincerity. It's the inwardness of authentic Christian praise making music in your hearts for the ears of the Lord. One translation says it. I rather like that. And if you think you're unmusical, and because of that you don't sing, then this is great consolation for you because you're singing for the ears of the Lord. And in his ears, all your voices are mellifluous. Even silent worship can be inwardly joyful and melodious to God's ears. What Paul's saying is that without doubt, spirit-filled Christians have a song of joy in their hearts, and spirit-filled public worship is a joyful celebration of God's mighty acts. Third result of being filled with the Spirit is gratitude. Always and for everything, giving thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. One of the great sins of God's people from the beginning of the biblical story to the end is grumbling. Murmuring, it's called. Grumbling is not compatible with the Holy Spirit. Period. But are we really to give thanks for everything? Paul, I think, means to say to us, we don't argue with God in the midst of our suffering, but we trust him. Indeed, we thank him for his loving providence, which causes him to turn evil to good purposes. We praise God for being God, for doing what God does. We don't praise him for evil. A wife whose husband leaves her doesn't praise God for his adultery. 
but may well praise God that he's able to turn even that man's evil heart around or console her in the midst of her tragic loss. We give thanks for everything which is consistent with the loving fatherhood of God and the self-revelation he has given us in his son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship, worship, gratitude, and finally, submission. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Who in the world could do that if he or she were not filled with the Holy Spirit? But just go back to Galatians 5 and maybe begin like John Stott did, praying every day for the fruit of the Spirit to be cultivated in your heart and life. And then watch as those things come to shape you and your relationships That's what submission is. It's living in that spirit of the fruit of the spirit. All these four things concern our relationships. If we're filled with the spirit, we'll be harmoniously related both to God, worshiping with joy and thanksgiving, and to each other, speaking and submitting to one another. Spirit-filled believers simply put, love God and love each other. And why would that surprise us? Because the first fruit of the spirit is love. So we've come full circle, and I'll end with this invitation from our Lord Jesus. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. It's an invitation that is wide. If anyone. It's an invitation that is relevant. If anyone thirsts, It's an invitation that is personal. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me, Jesus says. And it's an invitation that's simple. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And here's the promise. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will come, will flow rivers of living water. So when you pray to be filled with the Holy Spirit, guess what? You're not only filled, you're overflowing. God wants you to overflow with his Spirit so that you even splash on all those around you to their delight. Being filled with the Spirit means you become flow-throughable. Did you come thirsty? Then come now to the table. Whoever drinks the water that I give will never die. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.